0: All right, we're going to continue with our series on Daniel. And we're still talking about Daniel influencing the pagan kingdom that he lived in, and it's Babylon. And we ended on a high note last time. In Daniel chapter 4, we ended with Nebuchadnezzar. And how Nebuchadnezzar actually wrote scripture. He wrote a portion of the Bible. And he speaks to the Gentile nations, and he actually speaks to all the peoples of the world. So Gentile and Jew alike, Nebuchadnezzar had a message for the world. And I thought Nebuchadnezzar's message fit the time that we're living in. In fact, I think it was prophetic for the days that we're living in. So we closed on this high note of him giving an evangelistic speech. Now you wouldn't think of the King of Babylon being converted and talking to you as a believer and telling you what he learned about pride and uh, how it didn't work so well for him now in looking at it it's a contrast in chapter five it's like that Hebrew parallelism and we're only going to deal with one chapter today but if we compare chapters four and five before we start you're going to see that we're describing the pride of two men and you would say also the um, dethronement of two men how you can get kicked out of where you were. So in chapter five, it starts talking about Nebuchadnezzar and someone else. In fact, let me just say it a different way. In chapter five, it starts talking about someone else and it never mentions Nebuchadnezzar again. It's just like he's over. The time has come and Belshazzar appears to be the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He'll refer to him as his father in here. And if you would like to see the commentary on who Belshazzar is, you can just go through pages that I will not bore you with of understanding who Belshazzar was. So I decided to do some research and find out what happened between chapters 4 and 5. And you find out that a great deal of time has passed. And so Daniel just starts out in chapter 5 with just this new guy named Belshazzar who is now the king of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar has died in the year 563. Now, for a while, this, all this was disputed, but some archaeological studies have confirmed Belshazzar in scripture. One of them is this guy named Sir Rawlingson. But you also find hints of who this guy is in other places in your scripture. It's unique to think that not only Daniel told the story, but the prophets also spoke of this. And so the prophets also talked about the son of Nebuchadnezzar, and the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So it shows that it wasn't going to just be a one-person reign, that just one king was going to come in, but it would have some lasting time to it. So Jeremiah talks about Nebuchadnezzar and the son to him. Now, I want you to read this verse. It's, it's very unique here. And in Jeremiah, listen to what he says. So now I have placed all these lands under the authority of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. So it's unique to think that God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And thank goodness in this one, it isn't his, just his servant to do disaster on his people. But actually, this guy would truly become his servant in all senses of the word. His servant, his spokesman. But he says, I placed the lands under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. I have even made the beast of the field subject to him. Now that's very unique to think of what's going to happen in Nebuchadnezzar's life. That Jeremiah says, I've made the beast subject to Nebuchadnezzar. Because for a while, it was going to be a problem. So I thought that was kind of a a unique uh, sentence in the scripture. And it says in verse 7, all the nations will serve him. But it doesn't stop there. Serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes then many many nations and great kings will enslave him. So it tells both of the time that he will enslave other nations and then when he himself will be enslaved but you see it's not going to happen in his generation it will happen to his grandson. So this builds the case for who Belshazzar is according to Scripture. That it's going to last through two generations. That it's going to be his grandchildren that this happens to. Also, you might put 2 Chronicles 36.20 down in your notes. So, Belshazzar is the final king. Now, you might could call Belshazzar the playboy king. <laughs> because he is having an interesting period in his life at this point. You can tell what kind of man he is. Now does Belshazzar represent man as a whole in the end? Like the case that I'm making is Nebuchadnezzar is speaking into the peoples of the world. But is Belshazzar representing basically what man in general will be like when Jesus returns? Because this is really the point that is happening to the Babylonian empire is this picture of what we're going to read in chapter 5, this last day in the last king, the last day in the life of the last king of Babylon may represent the last day of us, of what man will look like on the earth. So Daniel had an interesting life. Let's just say he outlasted a number of kings. Like he just seems to go on and on and on. And he not only outlasted a number of kings, he converted one of them. You know, Dad's advice to me when I was telling him about what my enemies were doing to me, he said, Angie, outlive your enemies. And I think this originated with Daniel. He just outlived all his captivities. So, let's look at how he tells the story. Daniel writes this book, and what he likes telling about are very powerful stories, highlights. Uh, It's probably not the way that the worldly king would have told his story of his life, of how his reign went. But Daniel tells how God was constantly trying to get in to the kings. So when you see Daniel tell a particular story, it's how God is trying to connect to the king, how he gets into their life, how he gets involved. That's what Daniel's interested in. He's interested in the connection between God and the king. So that's what God's interested in your life is when he and you connect, when power connects to God. When God intervenes in the life, and so these are the the behind-the-scenes spiritual points. So, Daniel passes over several kings. He gives a very brief account of this one, but it is one traumatic day, as like I've said, of the last day of the last king. So, this is where we're going to pick up our story, and we're going to go from here. Now, There's a question asking, as you're looking at prophetic verses, how can this guy be the 11th king of Daniel and still be the 8th king of Revelation? For you who get really deep into uh, these studies, it says because he, Titus, had come after a very short reign of three rogue civil war kings who were not acting in the interest of the glory of the kingdom. So these numbers go on and on. If you want to try to understand it from a secular history standpoint, my hat's off to you. There's a lot of different theories out there. But we're going to deal with it from what Nebuchadnezzar is known to have done. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar had set this kingdom up by invading Jerusalem three different times. Like he had set up this connection not only between God and Nebuchadnezzar, it was set up by the fact that he invaded Jerusalem. It brought him in close contact to the God of Israel. So he actually, in a way, went and found God by doing what he did. And it was, I mean, he was terribly cruel. So it's unique when you study the conversion of the man to know who he was. But this entire thing with Daniel being a part of his kingdom began in 605 BC when Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem. And when he did, not only did he go in there and attack Jerusalem, but he took the vessels out of the temple, which is going to be significant. So he carried off the loot. He carried off the gold. He went into the holy place, and he was like, this God must not be much because I can get his stuff. So he went in there, and he looted them, and he took hostages back to Babylon, and he was like, I not only can get his stuff, but I can get his people, and guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to brainwash them, and I'm going to train them in the ways of how the Babylonians think. And Daniel was carried off in the first round of deportations. He was carried off from the very beginning, but again, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't satisfied in 597 BC. He went back and he was like, there was good treasure while I was there. I'm going to get the remaining treasure. This time, he didn't take a few hostages. He took 10,000 people back with him. The king was broken mentally. Jehoiakim was the king at this time and he did not resist he showed no resistance he showed no rebellion to nebuchadnezzar he completely surrendered to him he was like just do whatever you're going to do just take it so you know you see some nations they get occupied and they don't have any resistance in them which um, you got to find out how much fight you have in you when a neighboring nation is coming to take you away so in 586 bc is a third time Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem and this time he does something once he's looted it now he completely destroys the temple he takes Solomon's temple and he crushes it so this is very significant to Jewish scholarship to not have the temple any more at this point that it's completely destroyed and he not only destroys the temple but he takes the remaining part of the population in seeing what Nebuchadnezzar did, you can understand how foreign entities think. When they're coming in to occupy, they'll take a sampling the first time, perhaps, if they don't do it all at once. And then little by little, they erode and they take it away. So nobody could live in the land with confidence that, oh, after the first attack, this was it. Nebuchadnezzar was going to continue attacking till he had completely dominated the area. It is a game of domination. And if you think about it, they might have thought, well, we live pretty secure from Nebuchadnezzar because honestly for him to get to us, it took four to five months because it was a, by foot, it was a four or five month journey. It's 1,678 miles point two from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, Babylon sets securely. And this is where we pick up our story as we look at why Belshazzar was very secure in his heritage. He knew this. He knew how many times his grandfather had uh, struck Jerusalem. He knew of his grandfather's conquering ways and he was going to live in the benefits of it. He was not a second generation but a third generation coming down the lines. And what he liked about his setup for his life was he was untouchable. You know, he had a magnificent fortification around him. I mean, literally the way that his grandfather had set it up, he didn't have to worry about conquering armies. It was surrounded, of course, you remember, by the large moat. Then it had a double set of walls around the city. You remember how you hear it was a one to two hundred cubits high, which is around three hundred and thirty feet, with a hundred strongly fortified gates and The the walls around the city, remember they raced chariots four wide around the top of the city. There were three palaces, complex, and his grandfather was so proud of what he did, remember he signed his name on each of the bricks. And so the grandson sat in there, and he had been so blessed by life. And that's the bad thing about kids that are raised, that a lot of times they'll take what their parents gave them, what someone set up for him as a fortune and this is how they do their stewardship. So I want you to see with this kind of setup what Belshazzar thought about. What he thought was his responsibilities. What he thought that he had to do. Now I've done a little bit more research and I want you to realize these people weren't like pagans in the way that you think primitive. They were actually the leading experts of the day. They were mathematicians greater than what most kids would be in grade school and high school like they were getting into stuff that you would uh, get in deep college math they did quadratic equations of reciprocals they did the squares and the square roots they figured out 60 seconds to the minute Uh, they figured out 60 minutes to the hour they were the one that discovered the 360 degrees to a circle i mean they worked out all the details Literally, they were uh, experts in commerce. They came up with the idea of bills, promissory notes. Oh, you'll love this one, compound interest. (laughs) They worked in that, and they had a form of a check system. These guys had it down. So as Belshazzar looked out the windows of his palace, he realized, I run a brilliant society, kingdom, culture. And they got into astronomy. And they understood the stars and the planets. They not only understood the eclipses and understood what was happening, but they could predict when they were going to happen in the future. It's a lot of math. It's what is mostly done by computers today. So not only did they study the astronomy, you know, the, the scientific understanding of the planets, but they got deep into the dark side of this. They were very occultic in their dark arts. They had wizards and magicians and sorcerers. And he had this full in his kingdom. So now, as you walk among the streets of Babylon, you understand what was in this magnificent city that uh, the whole world looked at. You know, as we looked in the cities today, you wonder what's within it the fortifications, the, the intellectual strength, the darkness. And that's what we walk through. So, at this very point, we have something going on uh, that nobody knows about. On top of the night, there was a a pagan army at this very moment that was very near the walls of the city. As Belshazzar goes through this next thing. But he wasn't concerned about it because armies could pass by, come and go, and they wouldn't touch Babylon because Babylon sat securely. He sat there in a way that nobody could touch him. So what is this king doing? We don't find this king in doing something evil where he's aggressively killing all the people that he has in his kingdom. Uh, What is he doing that that today God's going to visit him? What is so horrible in his life that this is the point that God said enough? And you wonder that on the time calendar of looking at what God's staring at today, what does God look down and say, that is enough, enough? What is so horrible? Well, I'm gonna say that it was his coasting. With Belshazzar, it was his omission. It was his false sense of security. It's where man sits today. In Belshazzar's day, the city had not been stormed by invaders for 1,000 years. So you can see why the Babylonians had no concern about enemy fortresses. There was no way that they could even be cut off and ran out. How can you cut off their water? The river ran through their city. (laughs) They had thought of everything. They were fortified. His grandfather had thought of everything, and so he was in the midst of the praise and the security, not knowing at that very moment evil was lurking and evil was working to break through. That at that very moment in your life, that evil is always trying to get through to you. You know, secular historians fill in a lot of details here exactly what happens and how this takes place. But we'll save this for a moment of exactly how does the enemy penetrate our life. Now as he sits here on his final day on earth, what is he doing? And what will men be doing? It seems like that Daniel is a picture into the book of man. Like, it gives us a look. Not only was it prophetic, not only was Daniel a revelation of the Old Testament, not only was it a man that was so intense on God, much like John the, uh, on the Isle of Patmos, Daniel is seeing it, and not only seeing it, but living it. So I'm going to say that this moment is a moment for us to all look at, for it will be patterned again. As, as they say in, among the prophetic movements, that there are dual fulfillments to prophecy. Now Isaiah had actually prophesied this 200 years before it's going to take place the This was prophesied in scripture this night. And I would say that what Belshazzar was looking at was what happens when you aren't used to war. When you don't think it could happen to you. When you have 1,000 years of security when you have 245 years as a nation, when you have the fact that you fight on other people's territory, not on yours, when you don't have any kind of taste for war because it hasn't even been told to you what it was like because it's so far removed. You see Belt and he does not have something in him that has the ability to resist. He is much like the king that was carried away two decades before. He has no taste for war. But he has a taste for other things. The point that the guy had was he was lacking. And it seems like the judgment that will be upon the earth will be what we're lacking in. It's what we're not bringing to the table. It's very unique here to see what happens in this guy's life. You know, it's like those parables that we've talked about on the end. The ideal behind the parables are, are not so much all the crazy stuff going on, except for one issue in the parable that was doing evil, and it's the same as tonight. Remember, each one of the parables was something somebody wasn't doing, something they didn't prepare for, something they didn't invest in something they didn't see in helping people around them. But one parable of the end showed a detail much like tonight. They were eating and drinking with drunkards in Jesus' parable in in Matthew 24 and 25 when he tells the parables of the end. I don't know how we can miss tonight in this guy's life as being any different than what is prophesied by Jesus in the parables and what we will see At the final wrap-up. So let's just say he had organized a party and perhaps that's what everyone does. Like just don't interrupt my Friday and Saturday nights. Like what how do I spend my paycheck? Well I just spend everything I have on uh, my drinking for the weekend and then I start all over the next uh, week. It's how most think. And no parent gets mad at their kid for that that's in the world. They're just like, oh, kids will be kids, and, and they're doing it themselves. And so this slumber comes down on our thinking. And we're not much different today than the Babylonians here, and it's a great party. Now, if you're a king, you just invite a few more people to your weekend barbecue. You just have a few more. You know, I realize I don't know what the world enjoys about their life because it's the matter of drinking in our hometown here versus drinking in Dallas versus if you're big time, drinking in New York versus if you're bigger, drinking in London <laughs> drinking on the place, drinking on your cruise ship I mean, all it is is just a matter of drinking with a few more people and a few more what you would call interesting places and this is the setup for one detail that this guy omitted from his life. History tells of this, but they omit one particular detail. They don't tell what the guy was doing. And you know, it'll probably be the same in the end. The newspapers won't tell this part. Daniel doesn't bother to tell the part of how he was captured. Daniel tells the part of what caused this to take place. He has invited one thousand people to a drinking party. And in this leader's hand should have been that should have been grasping a sword at this moment. He's grasping a wine cup. And I wonder how many people should pick up the sword that have been made to be in this position in government to defend good. And they are lifting a different <laughs> a different piece of silver. And I wonder the contrast tonight between Belshazzar and what Daniel must be picking up in his spirit. What he's thinking must happen. You know, you have this guy, Daniel, and he's a captive. And he's about to have his captive city taken captive. (laughs) It's a lot of layers of captivity. Two different men. The party that he organized. Verse 1, it tells you he invited a thousand people to it. And along with it, he invited his dearly beloved. Well, let's just say all his wives and all his concubines had to be there. So he brought his best. And what does he do with the people? Well in the party he stands up and he shows his strength. He shows how how, what a strong man he is and he gives a command to his servants. Look at him displaying how great he is. You know Isaiah talks about that's what liquor does. It gives you liquid courage. (laughs) You, You feel like you're a hero in the bottle. And this is what the guy felt like it has not changed. And he gets up and and in the strength of his might, he commands his servants. And he tells them, bring me the vessels. Give me the vessels that my grandfather captured from Jerusalem. Like I have a reason for them tonight. Can you imagine the holy vessels taken out of the Holy of Holies or being brought to him? This is what's going down. Anybody that's been reading along about this God called the God of Israel that has appeared to Abraham, this is quite a moment of conflict. But this drunken guy, he's delirious in his prosperity, in his strength, in his ability to drink with a lot of people. Wow, what a guy. And so he had thought of a use for them. Like, we can't just let these things collect dust. Bring them to me. And he said, let's have our drunken party out of those vessels. And he invites his concubines and his wives. This guy was great at protecting the women in his life. And he said, let's drink tonight. Let's make merry. And let's enjoy our night. So as they poured the liquor into the uh, sacred vessels as the servants brought them out, he says, let's celebrate Babylon and how they defeated Jerusalem. Now, it's just like the enemy. You know, they've defeated a lot of different places, but he especially likes to get his finger down on God's people. He especially likes to put his thumb down on what happened. And uh, he calls out about how he defeated this God, and he begins to do something that we will have in the end. He begins to blaspheme. And it will be the... If you read Revelation, it'll be the thing that the people in Revelation did. They'll blaspheme. Liquor does not help people not blaspheme. (laughs) That's why it calls for a day of being sober. We have a lot of serious problems. And when you're tipsy with the wine cup, you're not clear in your mind. And so on the blasphemy, he just starts letting it come out of his mouth of what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. You know, of course... Bible studies or lessons we've taught in the past of tested by praise start coming into this moment here of, of thinking what he was setting up in the spiritual realm, why he whistled in his own demise here. So he praises and he toasts to something, and as he begins to toast and they lift their cups, it's very interesting that he toasts the metals. The names of the medals, the gods of gold and silver, and it just goes down the list, and he names the exact medals in his grandfather's dream. And he toasts to those medals. He toasts in, in the order of those medals. He toasts the very thing that his grandfather had dreamed. And the secession of the dream was the secession of the empires. And as he raises his cup in his own power and in the might of his own family name and in the might of all they have wrought upon the earth, this toast will be remembered. And as he calls out, he does not realize that the dream and the interpretation of the dream was going to be with amazing accuracy of the kingdoms. And the secession that people stand shocked today that Daniel could prophesy what kingdoms would take place until the Messiah would be upon the earth, until his coming. And what the God doesn't realize when he raises the cup and he raises the boast with his toast <laughs> that he is on the brink of a prophetic conclusion of fulfillment. The gold head is about to roll off. You know, I've wondered here, as they whistle and they have the servants bring in the, the vessels, you know, he had a, a button underneath his table and he stepped on the little buzzer and he said, please bring me in the, the food out of the, out of the butler's pantry, out of the kitchen that you prepared. Please bring these vessels that you have in storage. Ring, 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 bring them in. And you realize it, and you wonder something, just like it's shown off today, the very pieces that had been in Hezekiah's stewardship that he had shown off to the Babylon people. With Hezekiah saying, please, please, you know, good King Hezekiah, please God, just don't punish me in my generation, just let it happen to my grandsons. <laughs> wow. You see a lot of connecting things. That's the beauty of prophecy that at the time it just looks like a a fun moment and uh, you don't realize you're bringing it all together. Is this that treasure that he holds in his hand, that Hezekiah had shown to the enemy? You know, the stupidity of us to cast our pearls before swine. And Christians, believers do it all the time. It just whistles to it. Tested by Praise. So he does this public praise and it's a public mocking. He's intoxicated and he publicly shows contempt for the God of Israel. And this is the deal. God will not, cannot be mocked. And so at that moment, they're underneath, as the historians say. They were underneath the walls of the great city and Darius, the Persian, Aram, oh, excuse me, Uh, the Persian Empire, is cleverly managing to lower the level of the river. They had already had a drought. And so they divert the water, and when they do, they drop the river level, which gives them access in so that his army could breach them and come in unhindered. That's how, 1,000 years later, this moment reaches this point. So God interrupts. And it's interesting how God decides to interrupt this party. It's a strange messenger with a strange message. Let's call it a chilly message. People watch horror movies, and they don't realize their life is the horror movie. <laughs> they don't realize this stuff is, is taking place, the hand. In Daniel five seventeen 17-31, there's something strange that takes place. A hand appears, an unattached hand, or a hand where you could only see the hand and you couldn't see... The body the writing on the wall the other day they showed a picture of what was said to be my hand <laughs> in a combat situation everybody looks at the hand where is the hand who's the hand on it's above where a man could reach the the king looks at it and he is overwhelmed with fear it says that the king is so afraid at this moment that it says his knees begin to shake. It says they were knocking against each other. You know, these biblical expressions of, it's the handwriting on the wall. <laughs> your knees knock together come directly out of this story. I mean, it's pretty bad when you're shaking so bad that you can't keep your knees from knocking into each other. Well, he has a remedy for it. He calls for his astrologers and soothsayers, and he says, uh, tell me, What on earth this hand wrote on the wall? There are four words that were left written by the hand. Did the king, was he the first to see the hand? Did someone else in the party say, look, look over there? What was the position of the hand? Let me assure you, this was not a drunken mirage, nor was it a divine vision. He is not having a vision, nor is he having something he's seeing because he's drunk. There were words really written up on the wall. This really took place. It is eerie. Oh, the scholars argue here and debate. Did the king know what these words were? They think that they're some kind of ancient Aramaic words. They seem to be. Were they foreign words to him? Or did the meaning not make sense? Like, okay, I understand the, what those words mean in this language, but I don't know what the meaning is. In other words, I know the definition, but what's it trying to tell me? well, the king does what a king does, and he says, I've got money. The king does what rich people do. I can, I can buy my way out of this. I'll pay for an interpretation. Look, uh, I'll, I'll pay for it not only with money, but I'll give you importance and power. So he creates what he knows is a very tempting reward at this moment, and it's for anyone that can interpret what on earth has happened, because he has this sneaking suspicion that a message is trying to get through to him. Now, What's interesting about this is the men come up and they fail, But he's, I mean, the guy is obviously scared out of his mind. And he's desperate. And money's not doing for him what it usually does. Position and power and his word is not making things happen. And so guess who comes on the scene next? It's a very unique person that they have in this plot. But who walks in other than, it's not the queen. It's the queen mother. These foreign kings had a a chair where they sit on their throne, but their mother would sit next to them. You know, Bathsheba sat next to Solomon until uh, she started granting favors with his concubines he didn't like. I was in India in a palace and and it was the king and his mother. So these guys were mama's boys. They had their queen mother there. As she lasted, uh, she stayed. And it may not be as irregular as you think. I mean, it'd be like Queen Elizabeth, sitting next to let's if you want to say Charles or skip down another generation William that she still had a certain amount of power in the kingdom so she walks in so these queen mothers have an interesting role one thing she has is a long memory and she understands some things that this young guy doesn't the queen mother came in and she called the king's attention to someone that's forgotten a man by the name of Daniel she tells him, uh, son, I believe it's time to call for an old prophet. <laughs> These are old, ancient words, and I would think we better get someone with a little bit of wisdom in this kingdom. You know, someone my age, she's saying, she's choosing her age as having a little bit more understanding than of the age of Belshazzar. It's a contrast of generations here between Queen Mother and Belshazzar. It's, uh, let's pull in Daniel, she's saying, and uh, he's been forgotten. And she is so confident in Daniel that she begins to summarize his accomplishments. You know, it's funny what people do. Under pressure, they suddenly remember the few vague things they know about the Lord. He wasn't useful till now. I don't need you till I have to need you. Things don't change. But she knows a whole lot about this guy that they don't seem to utilize on their weekend preaching. They don't come here as sermons. They don't get his newsletter. They don't open his emails. I mean, he's not needed till he's needed. And so in verse 12, it suggests that Daniel interprets dreams. It suggests that Daniel has literally been doing a lot more than chapters 1 through 4 have told us. Like what she tells that he does means that Daniel just wrote us, the times when God intersected with kings. He didn't tell us every single thing he did in his ministry to the kings because she lists that he interprets dreams, he explains riddles, he solves difficult problems. He did this throughout the entire lifetime of Nebuchadnezzar. So by reading the Bible you're just thinking that there was one or two or three or four major intersections with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel but she's describing something about Daniel that No, he was in Nebuchadnezzar's life the entire time as a minister to him. Her answer makes it seem like he had many tasks in the kingdom. And so those recorded in the book of Daniel are but a sampling of Daniel's ministry, the high points. It'd be like us trying to explain every deliverance. (laughs) And she says that Daniel is extraordinary. Such fine words that we use on moments like this. But she had failed to impart this to this young man before now. What grandfathers don't tell their grandsons. What we don't pass down. You know, why do we not share our spiritual heritages? What do you teach your son? Does he know the God that you know? The faith that you have? The times that God sent unique people in your life? This is a story here That is so important at this moment. As this queen mother, and you don't see her relationship being very strong with God because of the way that she, when she describes Daniel in glowing terms, but we'll look at how she talks about Daniel's God to see if she converted at the same time. So Daniel's extraordinary, she says. She is proud to know about him, But she isn't a believer. She is a pagan queen mother. Daniel has a source, she says, in the gods. What an unusual concept of how they see us. Like They don't walk as normal people upon these earth, these believers. They have a source in the heavens with these gods. Like something up there gives information down here. That's how she describes him. And so her knowledge of Daniel and his God you can see is superior to that of Belshazzar's uh, but inferior to Nebuchadnezzar's final assessment. So she's above Belshazzar but she's nowhere near to what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to impart. So it wasn't a household conversion it doesn't look like. I've studied one of the women that Nebuchadnezzar married and he married himself an alliance bride. But he fell so in love with her, and she missed her homeland so much that it is said that that's who he built the hanging gardens for. And I would assume that perhaps this is the woman. But the queen mother has done what moms sometimes do. She puts a calming effect on the whole party. It might not have been best to be calmed down at this point. But the king and his guests seem to at least take it down a notch in the extreme fear they were feeling because at least there's an answer coming. He's on his way. And he's been summoned to appear before the king and the guests this very night. So he arrives, and in comes a very old Daniel. The young man to Nebuchadnezzar is now an old man with the grandson, the king. When Daniel arrived, the king was eager to assure himself that this was the man that the Queen Mother has recommended with the credentials that he has what it takes to perform this task. He is willing to say he is the chief astrologer of all my astrologists. He must have magician powers above all that I have, and he must be able to get a hold of God at this time, and who on earth has sent this message to me? The reason his guys couldn't read the message, it was because it wasn't from their gods. (laughs) Sometimes, people have got to understand, we're about the only ones that can interpret the book. (laughs) You've got to know the God to know the book. (laughs) And this message can't be interpreted by pagans, non-believers, drunken fools, people wise in their own estimation. So his questions are interesting now that the king asked Daniel, are you the man? that my grandfather brought from Jerusalem. I mean, you know, on the night we exported the vessels, we exported you. So maybe you can understand the vessels to understand what's happened. And so he asked some questions. The king put his focus now on Daniel's performance. Like, uh, we're going to look at what you can do for us at this point. You know, you've been given high marks by the queen, and now I'm going to say good things about you. I mean, both now queen and now the king are saying great things about him. And so the king's questions about Daniel's ministry and his interest now, where he came from, becomes the basis for something that is about to take place. His interest, his information, is now going to become the basis for the indictment of the king in the verses that follow. It's going to be the indictment of the king's sin. It's odd that what the queen assesses about Daniel and his ministry and now what the king questions and and verifies about it now will become the very reason the king is sinning against God. This very moment, this information right here is going to be the crux of what causes the hand to come. So the question will flip around because the king is checking out Daniel's credentials. He's checking out Daniel's performance. He's checking out Daniel's wisdom. And he doesn't realize that he's looking into a mirror. And the king, the higher king, the king whose hand wrote on the wall, is checking out his credentials, his wisdom, and what he's bringing to the table how foolish we are in pride. We think we're checking them out and don't realize that we're being checked out. I always ask myself, am I doing what they're doing? Anytime when I see someone else's pride, I ask that question. Am I doing what they're doing? And when I think of my own pride, I tell myself this, it's not God being tested, nor the prophet of God. Guess who's in the hot seat? And so this king, in his usual thing of testing whoever stands before him, is testing Daniel, only to realize that Daniel's there to explain the test to him. It's very odd, but this happens every single time in pride. So, in the prior interpretations and this interpretation, Belshazzar had not paid attention to past interpretation so he wasn't gonna understand this interpretation. Like, this is that thing we talked about. Why would God speak to you again when you haven't done what he said the last time? Why would God give you another prophecy from brother Jacob when you haven't read over the last one you've done? Why will he tell you something new if you haven't done what you were told to in the first place? I mean, we try to chew your food for you I mean, Moss tops your own prophecies up for you, hands them to you. Do you read them? Do you live your life by them? How important are your interpretations to you? Do you know what was said? We talked to a lady the other day, and she got into an argument with us about what her interpretation said. How serious are you? You're demanding more from God. Where do you give it back? And this is where we stand here is this interpretation it's being shed in the light of past interpretations. It was in chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar had a bad dream. In chapter 4, he had another dream with another interpretation. But this time, it's not a dream. It's, a, it's reality. Uh, the others were prophetic predictions. Not this one. This one's going to go down completely different. But yet, it's going to have an interpretation at the same. All the failure of all the wise men, all who fell before him. The success must be rewarded. So if Daniel was going to be able to fulfill the king's request, there would be a reward. The king promises he goes over it. We're going to give you a royal clothing, a gold a necklace, and a, a position of power. Yes, unique when worldly people think they have the power to bless you. <laughs> when God has blessed you, you're not needing the blessings of man. So he's telling him, look what I can give you. And when you put the message with what's being promised to him, you can see why Daniel wasn't excited about what he was going to be given. Obviously, the king was eager to know what the hand had said, what the four words meant. He was desperate. So he offered him a third place in the kingdom. This is one of the other reasons that they believe he was a grandson that he could have been a co-regent, that he was somehow a second-in-command because he doesn't offer him second position in the nation. He offers him third. And uh, scholars will make a lot of this point, so I'm just making you make a mental note. But Daniel turns down the promotions. He turns it all down. He knows that not one stone will be left on (laughs) He knows that why would he want this from a dead man? So he goes on to answer the king's request. And he pushes back on the rewards. Daniel interprets the inscription on the wall. And it's a very unique inscription of, again, you've been weighed. And you're not bringing enough to the table. In other words, you're coming up light on the scales. You're lacking. The whole concept. And I feel like what God is upset with man over is what we're not doing. What we're not bringing. It's is the sin of omission. And so all these people that are secure in the fact of, I'm doing good, I'm not doing anything wrong, but it's, I'm not doing, period. It's not, I'm not doing anything wrong, it's, I'm not doing, period, period, uh, dot, 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 dot. I'm not doing. And so this is what causes this appearance to come of God coming into our life, putting a finger on our life at some point. And, and I'm going to ask you, when has God put that mysterious finger on your life and pointed to you and saying, what are you lacking? What are you not doing for me? Where are you just not living for me? I mean, you're obsessed with what you're doing wrong. God is is saying... You're not doing anything of the reason I created you or the purposes that I put you for, and you're not asking about it. There should be a point in your life that that hand has appeared already to you and wrote to you you're lacking. You're not doing anything. You've been weighed. It's your chance. This guy is getting a prophecy that's going to tell him, You are destroyed. And you can guess that everyone was cold, stone, sober at this moment. When your leader's getting a prophecy of, of you're going to be destroyed, no one else gets in line to get their word. Oh. 999 people. Concubines ran out the door first. Uh. Honestly, does Daniel seem like the type that he wants a new coat and a necklace right now? I mean, is is that what he's wanting? He has just made him ruler of the kingdom, which has just been declared ended by God, numbered and ended. And the guy, he thought it was a good idea to offering something he couldn't get anywhere else. (laughs) Jesus describes the last day as being one party scene. And in the same way, the last days of Babylon ended in the same way. So the judgment, the lesson of the writing on the wall, what would God write on your wall? Since that day when God put his hand on you and said you're lacking, you're omission, what has taken place since then? Have you, like Hezekiah, been given extra time? Is that the time that you're going to show the treasures away of what God's done? and? and birth the most evil uh, king that Israel's ever known during that time, or Judea, Judea. What are you going to do during that time that God writes on your wall that you give an account? What's God going to do with you from the time he visits you till now? Judgment involves what you're aware of, and Daniel has a very stern tone. These rewards did not soften him. And what you see here is with Nebuchadnezzar, he greets Nebuchadnezzar with, May the king live long! Long live the king. When he told Nebuchadnezzar of his judgment, he told him live long. He does not say those words to this king. That's a bad sign. He's in a bad mood. He's terse. And this generation, like children, say this thing of, "Uh, you're treating me like a child. Don't you understand? I'm the king, aren't you treating me like a child? And the thing is, you might have to ask the reason why. If you're being treated like a child, I don't care what age you are, you got to ask why am I being treated like a child? Specifically, the king evidenced in his pride through his blasphemous act of using the temple vessels to toast the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So he made his toast to. And so the specific sin, according to Daniel's words in the test, was the sin of Belshazzar, but that's what he got in trouble for was that concept of the vessels and the blasphemy. But the sin of Bishazar, what he's being judged for, what exactly is he being judged for? What else is being brought to the table? There, there's something that's very shocking that you're going to see that he specifically is judged for. It's his pride of not learning from history, from his heritage. So you're not only responsible for scripture, but you're responsible for learning from your heritage, your history. That's why it was so important that it kept being referenced what Daniel had done in Nebuchadnezzar's life, because that's what's coming down right here. He did not learn the lessons God had given Babylon through the experiences of King Nebuchadnezzar. He had not learned from his grandfather's testimony. I had someone the other day in the midst of an argument with me call up on the name of Jack Ruth. <laughs> but he was so unlike Jack Ruth. You know, he was describing to me how, how connected he was and how close he felt and how much Jack had meant to him. Only for me to tell him what Jack Ruth would have said at that moment and him say, I must have my own way in this matter. And this is what had happened. He wanted the fortification. He wanted the guarding. He wanted what Nebuchadnezzar brought in that way, but he did not figure out what happened in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. So he gets to relive the pride scene in a different way. You know, these verses are fascinating in verses 18 through 24 because the guilt about Shazar is explained before 25 through 28. Explains the writing on the wall. Daniel spends more time on his guilt than on his punishment. And perhaps that's for us. For in this country we do have a heritage of what God has done in our forefathers. There's personal heritages. There's Christian heritage. There's people that have spoken to you. There's prophetic heritage. They're all around you. And he devotes more time to explaining the reason for the writing more than the meaning of the writing He does not take as much time for the words as for the fact of what he's lacking in having an understanding of what God has been doing in the place of why he stands where he stands now and what he could have done with it. This is for second generation Christians. This is for heritages. This is for those who are looking and saying, this is what is expected of me. Judge by history, judge by the lesson given to Nebuchadnezzar when it doesn't pass down, when you don't take heed, when you don't understand, when someone adopts you, when someone brings you into it. Who brought you into this? This is what you've been given, and that stands as our judgment. Judge by your heritage and judge by what you know. This is the sentence I want you to write down. Judge by what you know the things you know, but you don't learn from. That is the judgment. The judgment are the things you know that you have not learned anything from. What a mouthful. You know, we think of the hand, we think of the words, but we don't think what he's actually being called to task for. Intriguing because they focus on his grandfather, on Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar's sin is attributed to his failure in these three areas because he was the one to bring the vessels from the temple and under his reign Daniel divinely bestowed wisdom had come upon Nebuchadnezzar for these occasions but the wisdom had not passed down. The queen's mother understood Daniel had wisdom but the point was did she have wisdom? The king got it. Daniel had wisdom, but did he have wisdom? Oh, I like the fact that this guy can hear God. I should always keep him around and keep him well paid. <laughs> it's Saul to Samuel. He was in trouble when Samuel was dead. You're steward of the wisdom that's been given out through the generations that's arrived to you. You're steward of the things you know. Like you've got to do something with what you know. Like, that's the whole parable of whether you're built on sand. Like, you're judged severely by what you know. James says you might back off of taking a title on it because that's where you're judged what you know and don't learn from. So 10 through 12 focuses on Daniel's wisdom, but there's nowhere else to focus for wisdom, for it is not among the group that's here. You could go through a thousand people and not find the kind of wisdom we're talking about here. The learning, the what you're supposed to get. You know, it's that point of when you receive a mantle to even figure out where that mantle left off and what you need to improve upon. You must learn from what was handed to you, not only to go as far as they went as your mother, but further, And their gifts of intercession and their gifts of of wisdom and all the gifts bestowed, you must take it and go further. You have to contend for your mantle because he ignored the lessons that he should have learned from his father's experience. You know, if you don't learn from your father's experience, from wise men of God's experience, you'll have to learn from your own. And that's what's about to take place (laughs) because he could not learn As Dad told us on the last day on earth, youth are, they have a handicap. They don't have experience. So he said, borrow from someone else's experience. Dad said he went around town and he would just interview people and ask them questions that were older than him to try to get experience. But by this point in Dad's age, he's saying, look at Abraham, borrow his experience. And so right here, we're talking about the fact that they did not learn from the experience. The events in Daniel 4 are now being repeated, a lesson which not only Nebuchadnezzar had learned, but what Belshazzar should have learned. He should have learned something from his grandpa's um, book, seven years (laughs) and back. (laughs) He knew of his magnificent kingdom, he may have still had a few of the old concubines under his care. He understood the riches and the spoils, but his pride got in the way. Such an unusual verse where it talks about Nebuchadnezzar here, and, and the way it says it was he became like an animal who had no shelter, and that's what's t- being stripped from this guy tonight is shelter. He had to learn the hard way. He acknowledged God, and after seven years, his mind returned to him. Belshazzar knew the testimony, but he had not learned from it. You knew this. I like the words that it says. Belshazzar, do you not understand? This is what Daniel said too. That God holds your breath in his hands. He owns your ways. And you've not glorified him. He had done anything but glorify God that night. He did not stand up and tell the people let me tell you the story tonight of these vessels and what they represent and what happened to my grandfather and what that means. He had that moment to have shared the stories. But no, he was toasting to the gods of gold silver. And he had blasphemed, ridiculed, mocked, said things that were drunk. He had that moment. When the crowds are gathered, and when you gather the crowds, what do you do with it? If you're popular... Influence? What do you do with your influence? Daniel reminded him how proud and haughty, like that of his forefather Nebuchadnezzar, he exalted himself against the God of heaven by evidence and proclaiming the holy vessels taken from the temple. His sin was shared by everyone who had eaten and drank toast with him that night. Rather than glorifying God, he had went and got the very God, the very God that was speaking to him tonight, the vessels out of his temple for his own drunken pleasures party why didn't he use his own God's temple the moon God it's funny that's who they said this guy was worshipping but he went over and borrowed Yahweh's vessels Jehovah's vessels let me get his what do you take from God where you use God put his name on you when it does you good call on his prophets when you need them Take what you can get from your grandpa. That these pagans were engaged in some kind of drinking bout with the sacred temple vessels were bad enough. But the ultimate blasphemy was when he was toasting the gods of gold, silver, brass, iron, and stone and had forgotten that God is the one that makes the kingdoms golden, that changes the hearts of people. You know, people had tried to tell him that he had deaf ears. He went beyond what his grandfather had dared to do. He blasphemed God publicly. And he repeated the mistakes of Nebuchadnezzar by not repenting of the pride. That was the reason for the writing on the wall. The blasphemous use of the vessels. Judgment Day had arrived. And now there were three little words of a message. One of which word was repeated up on the wall. While these Aramaic, seemingly Aramaic words, could have been familiar to the king, the writing was so terse the king dare not interpret what on earth it meant. It did not seem like a good message. Now Daniel's about to interpret the words. He's told him the problem where he had failed, where he was lacking. The king didn't need a dictionary, he needed an interpretation of the context of this message in history. Daniel referred to the twice used word many informed the king that his days of his kingdom were numbered twice God tells him your kingdom is numbered why would God say it twice to him when he's only going to speak four words putting an end to it in effect God seemed to be saying Belshazzar time's up judgment summed up in three words imagine that God preaches to you Today, a three-word sermon. Three words. Tackle. It meant the king had weighed on the scales of divine justice and found a deficient. The king had given God short measure. Perez, Perez. (laughs) Is the divine notification that the Babylonian kingdom was to be divided? It would be stripped, divided, and handed over to the Medes and the Persians. He was found doing less. He was found wanting his life, what he was as a ruler. And now, even his response to the message is going to be found wanting. Mm, More of the same. Continued pattern. He doesn't get it. He can't make this turn in the roller coaster fast enough to figure out what he's doing wrong. You know, there's no stump. As Nebuchadnezzar was given the promise of a stump that will have shoots come up. There will be a, a restoration. That, it's going to be rough going, Nebuchadnezzar, but you're going to make it. He has no promise. You know, you hate a stump, but it's worse when you get four words that, <laughs> that say it, you're completely cut down. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, arguably experienced true spiritual conversion. Belshazzar is the type and shadow of the non-repentant man. Not evil, but omission. Who lifts his cup and says praise to the God of one. You look at our councils, our conventions, our government. And the cup is listed. Praise be to the God of one. If you want to do a little deeper study. Compare Isaiah 13, 6 through 19 with Revelation 17 and 18. And you'll understand the expression handwriting on the wall. For there was dual fulfillment of the day of the Lord. In Isaiah, God makes ten prophecies against Gentile nations. And again, it's overlapped as they compare these passages together. And they talk about the great prostitute, whore of Babylon. Daniel both talked about the end days. And he lived through an exact replica of them himself. Where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say the same thing. People will be partying to the end. There'll be marrying and not marrying, There'll be two people, two thieves, two people at work, two people in bed, two people in the same family. There'll be grandfather and grandson, most people not getting it, most people doing too little, most people not repenting. It's the prophecy. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. He called for the prophet to be clothed in scarlet and a gold chain to be hung about his neck. It was a vain gesture of a drowning man grasping at a straw too late to do any good. You're hearing this, so you will not come to a point where you fall in step with people inviting you to the, the parties of the thousand, where people lift the goblet, where people say, praise be to the wine. For everywhere I go, we have a drunkenness of wine upon us. That's it's the story of the end days. It's the spirit, it's the dissipation. It's the complacency of the hour. What is your response now? For Daniel stands before you as we repeat his words. He stands before you as he says these words to you. And he says in verse 29, this is what the king responded at this moment in hour, which like his life and administration was found wanting, Belshazzar's response to Daniel was simply two realities. First, he did believe Daniel. He believed what he said was true. Is why he was going forward with the reward. He didn't believe Daniel had lied to him. So you can agree, I believe what Daniel says is true. I believe that what Jesus says about the end is true. But what are you going to do about it? What kind of response does it make for you? While it is not said that Daniel urged the king to repent as he did with Nebuchadnezzar, the prophecy affords sinners the opportunity to repent just by the mere fact That a prophet is called on. It gives you a moment to repent. Just by the fact that we discussed this, it gives you time to repent. But the king, look at what he did. What was his response? Daniel's response to Belshazzar's reward. What is odd is in verse 29, Belshazzar gives orders. And he clothes Daniel with purple, and he does put the necklace around his neck, and he does offer a proclamation concerning him that he now has authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. In this one final act, why does Daniel take it this time? Well, Daniel didn't take it in the beginning, and he said no to it because he didn't want to cloud things up. But he let the king just throw whatever little he had towards him. A walking dead man now is placing a dead man's necklace on his neck, putting dead man's clothes on him, and making him an official in a kingdom that has Babylonian hours and minutes and seconds left. You know, the king's insistence insistent on rewarding Daniel in the last moments of his life. How do you understand it? The interpretation of the writing on the wall Why did he turn down the reward and now he says yes. The king's promise was fulfilled, but in a way, this moment was sealing the doom. How tragic to be preoccupied, the gold, the clothes, the promotion of a man, rather than with eternity, heritage, what God expects, what true wealth. He still wasn't listening to Daniel. He still had cheap substitutes. Daniel had told him no and he still was determined to give it. He wasn't really listening. When you're under this delusion, you do what you want to give to God like Cain. You give God what Daniel what you want him to have. But you're not listening to what Daniel tells you God wants. He said let the king keep his own gifts or give them to someone else. It was terse. He had declined but now, they're put upon him. You know, Daniel was telling the king, I don't work like a prostitute, for I'm speaking to a prostitute. In the book of Revelation, you will be called the great prostitute. I'm not for hire. He's telling him, I speak to you as God speaks to you. I'm not like Balaam, who can be bought. he had given the king the interpretation and the judgment. It was the king's decision to do what he must with the message. And what did the king choose to do? What are you going to do with your time? What you've been told. Yeah, I don't think Daniel was thinking, wow, I'm the third highest office in this land. I don't think that was what Daniel had. Daniel's prophetic timeline for Belshazzar. You know, in this doom prophecy, there's given no time frame. Daniel doesn't indicate how much time is left. We know from the final verses of the passage that that night would not pass without the king being put to death. For him, there were only minutes at the most hours to repent, and he does not do so. He just covers everything with royalty, with robes. That very night, it says 30 through 31, Belshazzar was slain. He died in judgment, he died prideful, perhaps he died drunk. The death of Belshazzar at the hand of the king Darius is a partial fulfillment of prophecy revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar by his dream. There would be four kingdoms. There will be a switch from gold to silver. And tonight, the switch is made. Gold was Nebuchadnezzar, and the silver will be introduced in Daniel 5. For the silver kingdom was down in the moat. Climbing up, when Darius captures Babylon, Belshazzar is put to death and the gold is ended. The Medo-Persian kingdom is born, fulfilling the first part of the prophecy revealed through Daniel. Belshazzar is the last of the Babylonian Chaldean kings. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. Verse 31. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age 62. That's how it tells it. That's how quick he can be replaced. That's how quick it can go from the God you toasted of gold, silver. And so Daniel was not given a time frame for when the kingdom would end. You remember how long Nebuchadnezzar had? Remember he prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel did. And Nebuchadnezzar had a year before the the prophecy came about that his mind would leave him. So he was beginning to think after a year this isn't going to happen. Uh, Belchester didn't have that. <laughs> Daniel's words were that time had run out. That very night, the writing on the wall was fulfilled. And he clung to his pride of not doing it right. His pride was that he would not do it right. He would not do it right. He would not bring what God needed, wanted, must be on the scales. He would not make his judgment count for something. He clung to a small life. clinging to a small life and a small destiny this is your moment in history Nebuchadnezzar had ruled for 43 years and he was the longest ranking or reigning of the Chaldean dynasty God's kingdom would endure but his would not his gold head was now coming down Babylon fell tonight and this not history records they know the date was October the 12th 539 BC now I have a question for you. What's going to happen to Daniel? A captive. In a captive city. Being captive again. Captivity. Would he get out alive? Who really are these people? And how do they fit into prophecy? What does God have to say? What is going to begin with Daniel? Interesting. This new army noticed Daniel's wisdom. And made him an important position. He's. How would this happen? Daniel's about 90 years of age on the night this goes down. So, as Belshazzar has his head taken off, Daniel has to trust the Lord for what's going to happen this night. Will he get out alive? And who are these people coming for him now? Amen.